We sing a song entitled, When We All Get to Heaven, What a Day of Rejoicing That Will Be and Such. When we all get to heaven, we're going to see, I believe, the Lord Jesus Christ, as Fanny Crosby said, my Savior, first of all. But I think we're also going to see a lot of nobodies, folks that are just barely mentioned in the Bible, like Chloe, I think a pastor at, uh, at Corinth, and guys like uh, Archippus, who was a pastor at uh, Colossae, and guys like uh, Hermas and Gaius and others. But some of them aren't even mentioned in the Bible, and we're going to see them. God gets the glory that way. When he uses nobodies. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the epistle of 1 Corinthians in the first chapter. We're continuing in our series on God's nobodies. We sing a song entitled, When We All Get to Heaven, What a Day of Rejoicing That Will Be and Such. When we all get to heaven, we're going to see, I believe, the Lord Jesus Christ, as Fanny Crosby said, my Savior, first of all. But I think we're also going to see a lot of nobodies. Folks that are just barely mentioned in the Bible, like Chloe, I think a pastor at, uh, at Corinth, and guys like uh, Archippus, who was a pastor at uh, Colossae, and guys like uh, Hermas and Gaius and others. But some of them aren't even mentioned in the Bible, and we're going to see them. And we're going to look at some of them today. But we're going to start by looking at 1 Corinthians 1, and as a springboard, beginning in verse 26, we'll read through the end of the chapter, which says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world. And things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Let him glory in the Lord. God gets the glory that way when he uses nobodies. And we're going to be talking about some more today. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we ask you to help us to listen carefully, maybe even identify with those that we'll look at today in some way. Father, you've given to all of us certain characteristics and traits and attributes, things that we are uniquely suited with in order to serve you with. Father, I just pray we'd make no apology for being what you made us to be. And Father, that if we are just a zero, Father, you'd still use us in a great way. We pray now and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the Bible mentions dozens and hundreds and thousands of characters now, I wonder how well we know these characters, and I wonder how well our children know these characters. It's really interesting to talk to our kids and find out how much Bible they know. It's interesting to even talk to adults and find out how much Bible they know. We have a contest in at least my 930 Bible class on Sunday mornings, kind of a Bible trivia thing, and, and most of the time it's real easy. But when it's not, it's, uh, it's interesting to see what stumps the, the, the people in my class, you wonder how much Bible we really know sometimes. In fact, 
When we realize our lack of knowledge, it ought to drive us into the book, help us to study it even more. Because the Bible has some great truths in it, and they're truths that really drive home the, the, the principles of the book. And, the, and they're truths that stick. And so it's important that we spend time in the Bible. And as we do, names like uh, Hermes are going to get familiar to us. Names like Crispus, weird name. Oh, names like Rufus, names like uh, Demetrius and, and Baruch and, and Tychicus and, and other obscure names that the average person wouldn't know because they know like Moses and Noah, but, but a Christian ought to understand there's a lot of nobodies in the Bible, and God uses the nobodies, some of them even unnamed, which we'll see today. Our text tells us in verse 26 that, that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. What's that talking about? It means they're not the type that normally gets saved. Why? Because Jesus said, except you humble yourselves as little children, you're not going to get saved, not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 27 says, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and weak things and base things and, and lowly things. Verse 29 says, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. You say, well, how can God use us if we're not equipped with anything? Well, verse 30 tells us, it says, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. In other words, all the things we need, we have in Christ so that God can use us in a mighty way. And that's encouraging because I think perhaps 90 plus percent of all Christians are, are nobodies or ungifted. I had somebody tell me one time, Pastor, you are quite a commentator. I said, well, no, I'm, I'm really just a commentator. <laughs> just a plain old commentator, an old spud, you know. But I've said before, it's a universal human experience that we feel inadequate, we feel inept, and we feel deficient, and we feel flawed. And that's okay, because God couldn't really use us if we felt we were something. It's okay to feel that way, I guess. We all, all really ought not feel too high and mighty about ourselves, because God uses the little nobodies. In fact, Christ picked nobodies fishermen, tax collectors, and, and commentators, if you will. And he himself was, was just a common man from Nazareth of all places. And so God uses the nobodies, and that's encouraging to me to know. And we're going to look at three more today, three more examples. The first one I call the meticulous medic. This meticulous medic. Now, who do we have in the Bible that would be a, an MD or a, a, a doctor or a physician? I think Luke would come to mind, right? First and foremost... Luke didn't write an epistle like John and, and Jude and James and, of course, uh, Paul. Uh, he didn't write editorially speaking. In other words, where, where he kind of told what was on his heart. He actually just recorded what happened, and he was meticulous about it. I mean, he was very, very precise. In fact, turn to Luke chapter 1, if you would. Obviously, the gospel of Luke bears his name, but that wasn't his idea. It was really just a name that... Uh, those who arranged the canon of the, the Scriptures put on it to help us understand it. But Luke had a meticulous mind. There are people like that. God's given to every one of us assets and liabilities. Sometimes spouses want to rub out the uh, liabilities in the, the one they're married to, but in doing so, they'll wreck the asset. 
And, and so sometimes those, those things get on our nerves, and, and a meticulous person can kind of get on your nerves, but really, God's made us all different. That's what makes the world go round. God's trying to fill, fulfill all vocations, so He needs CPAs, and He needs carpenters. He needs all occupations filled, and He makes some people meticulous. Maybe you're one of them. Are you a detailed person? Uh, are you somewhat of a, of a perfectionist? I mean, do you catch things that, that other people don't catch? I think that was Luke. As he opens the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1, he says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, and maybe he's referring to Matthew and Mark and John, you know, others who have written down what Jesus did. Luke said, I need to as well. Verse 2, he goes on, he says, Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses, Luke wasn't, but they were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, he says, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed." Sounds like a doctor, doesn't it? (laughs) Nobody else opens their gospel that way. But here's Luke. And he's wordy, but he is meticulous, and I'm so glad he is. Luke inserts all kinds of things that we wouldn't know otherwise. I don't know if you've ever really done a study, an overall synopsis of the four gospels. It's a class we have here at Masters. It's something I took in Bible college. But there are things in the book of Luke, there are things in the book of Acts, that if it hadn't been for a meticulous medic like Luke... We wouldn't understand it. We wouldn't even know about it. Colossians 4.11 mentions Luke, the beloved physician. So we know he was a physician, but he was more than that. He was a historian, but he was more than that. He was a missionary as well. He was like a three-edged sword. He was a very unique guy. And uh, God used him in a great way. As far as we know, he was from the region of Tarsus. Does that town ring a bell? It, It was the same town that Paul would have been from. And I just have a theory. I can't really prove it. But I am guessing they were about the same age. In fact, I'm guessing they were boyhood buddies. When Paul got saved in Acts chapter 9, he got in hot water. It didn't take very long. By the end of the chapter, he's a hot potato, and they're saying, we need to get this guy out of town. So in Acts 9, and in verse number 30, it says, which when the brethren knew, they brought him, that's Paul, down to Caesarea, and sent him forth to Tarsus. Caesarea was a seaport town. You didn't really leave Palestine without going there. So they put him on a boat, and they said, you need to go back to Tarsus. So he goes back to Tarsus. He spends some chapters there, actually some years there, I believe. And in Acts 11.25, it says that, then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. So Saul was gone for a couple, three, four, whatever years, a few years anyway, and he was in his old hometown. So what was he doing there? Well, what would you do if you got saved and you went back to your friends and relatives? At least, what should you do? What, what should you do if, if you're right with God? Well, you should witness. That's what I would hope we would all do. In fact, the, the greatest influence we're going to have is, is those that we know and we are related to, at least if we have a good testimony. So Saul goes back, and it's, it just makes sense that he witnesses to his friends and his relatives and maybe his boyhood buddy by the name of Luke. If Luke was from Tarsus, and if they were friends, I have a theory that Paul led Luke to the Lord because for some reason, Luke was extremely loyal to Paul the rest of his life. I'll show you that in just a little bit. 
He was extremely concerned about Paul. I think they were best friends. But, but Luke wasn't a front and center guy like Paul. Luke was a behind-the-scenes guy. He was camera shy. He kind of stayed out of the picture. And maybe you're like that. Maybe you can relate to a Luke. Paul was the out-front guy. Luke was his personal physician, I believe. And Luke was, was fine with just being an encouragement or maybe a door knocker or maybe a, 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 a track stuffer or whatever it might have been in those days. Luke just kind of worked behind the scenes. But he was an encouragement to Paul. Maybe you're a behind-the-scenes person, but you can be an encouragement to an out-front, center type of a person. I would encourage you to do that if, if you're not. Luke might have been introverted. We don't know. Luke, we do know, at least we, we comprise this fact, that he was the only Gentile or non-Jew writer of the Bible. Now think about this. I mean, that's quite a title to have. In Colossians 4, which mentions Luke the physician, the verses around it mention actually eight people. And here's four of them, Onesimus and uh, Aristarchus. Paul says, my fellow prisoner saluteth you. And Marcus and Justice. He says, who are of the circumcision. In other words, Jewish. The other four, Luke being one of them, apparently weren't. And so here's eight names, but Luke's not one of the circumcision. So we conclude from that he's a Gentile. Luke was not a, uh, on the, uh, the, the site eyewitness to anything that Jesus did as far as we know. But he interviewed and interrogated those who were eyewitnesses. And he found out with, with, with meticulous detail, this medic wrote down about the virgin birth of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the healings and, and the teachings and, and his death and his resurrection. And he took all that in with great detail. And as a result, he was able to write these two books. In chapter 1 and verse number 5, he says this, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, we know the story of the parents of John the Baptist, but the only reason we know it is because Luke took it down, and Luke recorded it for us. Turn a page or two to chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, notice in the first four verses, he gives us more details. Verse 1, he says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a, a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. So immediately we know the time frame. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Now we've narrowed it down more. And all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So now we have some more details here. And, and you would say, well, you know, this is kind of dry stuff, Pastor. No, this is great stuff. This is wonderful stuff. It doesn't plague us here. I'm so thankful that Luke gives us this stuff so that we can place it right around 3 B.C. or so to where it actually began. Now look in Luke chapter 3, and in verse 1 he does some more. <laughs> it says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of Aturia, and of the region of Atrocanatus, and Lysenius of Tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, and so on and so forth, we get more detail here. Now, you would say, Pastor, this doesn't really stir my heart, but 
I'm telling you, I'm so glad Luke put this stuff in the Bible. Because now we know the, the year of the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist, and from there, we can kind of figure out from Christ. Here's Luke. He's intelligent. He's meticulous. But he's camera shy. I have a, or at least I had an aunt. We have a lot of pictures of her, but you'll never see her looking at the camera. He's always looking down. John R. Rice, you'd hardly ever see him looking at the camera. There's just some people like that. And, and Luke was kind of a, I think, a, a camera-shy person. His name does not appear in the book of Luke. I mean, it, it does as the title, but he didn't write it down anywhere. His, his name does not appear in the book of Acts. You say, well, how do we know that he wrote the book of Acts? Well, turn to Acts chapter 1, and, and we connect the dots to figure that out. But otherwise, we wouldn't even know that Luke had written the book of Acts, except as we... See the opening in the book of Luke like we did a moment ago. We see this, this Roman dignitary, we figure, who got saved and, and even got a different name. Theophilus means friend of God. And his name is in Luke, and his name is also in Acts. In fact, in verse 1 of Acts, chapter 1, it says, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. What's that former treaties? It's the book of Luke. And so we know that he's the writer of Acts because he's writing to the same guy, but he avoids citing his name here. Yet, yet he's in the thick of things. Look in Acts chapter 16. We know that he traveled often with Paul. Paul often dropped him off at various places because he was a real asset to the ministry. And here we find kind of some wording that helps us to know when Luke is there, when Luke's not there. We pick it up in Acts 16, kind of the famous Macedonian call here. In verse 7, it says, After they, now this is Luke writing, After they, Paul and company, were come to Mysia, they assayed or tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysius, came down to Troas. So what's all this they and them stuff mean? It means that Luke wasn't with them. Because he's referring to them and they as if he's not there. But now they've come to Troas. Notice in verse number 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed to him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. What's different about this? Well, obviously Luke was in Troas. And so Paul meets up with them, and now we know that Luke is along with that, that traveling Bible college, as I call it. So we, we find these them sections of the Bible, we find these, these we sections, and we always know when Luke was along for the ride. Luke was there in Philippi, the whole jailer thing, uh, Luke was there. Uh, Luke stayed there, actually, while Paul went on to uh, Athens and Corinth, and then turned to chapter 20. They reunite here in after, uh, Acts chapter 20. And we know that by the wording once again. We pick it up in verse number 3 of Acts 20. It says, And there abode, and there abode three months, and when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return to Macedonia, and there accompanied him unto Asia, uh, Sopater of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus, and Trophimus, these going before tarried for us at Troas. There he is again at Troas. And we sailed away from Philippi 
after the days of unleavened bread, came unto them to Troas five days, so on. So all that time he had been there at Philippi. And, and Luke chronicles everything from this point on. The return to Jerusalem with Paul, his arrest, his imprisonment, his uh, sending over to Caesarea, the two years that, that you would say, well, Paul just was wasting time for two years there, waiting to go to Rome. I don't think that was wasted time. I don't think it was wasted time for Luke, definitely. I believe that he did a lot of historical research while he was in Israel, and he interviewed a lot of people because we find out that somehow only Luke records things like um, the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and making the announcement of the virgin birth. Uh, only Luke records that, that Mary visited her cousin Elizabeth when she was several months along. Only Luke records that Joseph and Mary went into the temple and there was old Simeon and old Anna just waiting to die, but not going to die until they'd seen the Messiah. So Luke must have researched a lot and recorded a lot and interviewed a lot. He's the one who gives us that boyhood glance of, of Jesus Christ at age 12. We wouldn't even know that otherwise. Uh, he's the only one who records the widow son of Nain being raised from the dead. He's the only one that records the ten lepers. He's the only one that records the lost coin, the lost uh, sheep, the prodigal son, the lost son, the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, so he wasn't there to hear those stories, but he interviewed somebody who was there. He's the one who recorded that Christ said, Father, forgive them. Uh, for they know not what they do on the cross. And the thief uh, going to paradise and so on. And he followed even Paul after the trial there at uh, Caesarea. He followed him to Rome. In fact, turn to Acts chapter 27 if you would. That shipwreck that took place, that storm at sea, all that scary stuff, Luke was there. That's how loyal he was. And uh, in, in Acts chapter 27 and verse 1, it says, And when it was determined that we should sail unto Italy. They delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus' band, and entered into a ship of Adramitium, and we launched, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia, and so on. He says that uh, these other guys were with us, so we know that Luke was around. In fact, he was there uh, in Paul's trial in Rome. He was there actually when Paul writes his final epistle, which is Second Timothy. And in the last chapter and the last verses of that epistle, Paul says, only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. As Paul writes Timothy, he said, only Luke is with me. And isn't that just like Luke? Isn't that heartwarming, by the way? That's wonderful. I mean, wow. Here's Luke there to the bitter end. Maybe you're a Luke. Maybe you're camera shy. You don't like to be out in front. Maybe you're meticulous. Maybe you're, uh, maybe you're a nerd like Luke. I'm not saying he was a nerd, but maybe he was a geek. But maybe you're a detailed person, okay? Maybe you're, you, you just drool over that kind of stuff. And, and maybe you get on everybody else's nerves. But, but God can use a Luke and a meticulous person and a loyal person. Wow. I mean, who can knock his loyalty? God can use people like that. God needs people like that. So we see, first of all, this meticulous medic. But secondly, we see what I call these overshadowed offsprings. They're, they're kind of nobodies in the Bible, and I'm talking about the siblings of Jesus Christ, the brothers and the sisters of the Lord Himself. When I say the name Jimmy Carter, immediately you think of the President of the United States. Who is his brother? Some of you would remember Billy, right? Billy, when I say Billy Carter, you think of the, the beer drinker, right? 
You think of the guy who even had a beer named after him, his only claim to fame. Now, how would you like to grow up in, in the mega shadow of a brother who was a nuclear physicist and then went on to become governor of a state and then the, the president of the United States, and all you do is drink beer? <laughs> you know, that would be a little tough. And, and you, could, you could look at a lot of examples like that. There's, you know, when Nixon died, they, they interviewed his brother. And, and boy, he looks so much like him right down to the five o'clock shadow. I just smiled. But I thought, how would you like to be Nixon's brother or Clinton's brother or, or somebody's brother that, uh, that really was not known at all? Well, Jesus Christ had siblings. In fact, turn to Matthew chapter 13. That surprises some folks. In fact, they, there are some who think that really takes something away from Mary. There are some who are, who are overly strong in their emphasis on Mary and even into Mariolatry that, that claim that Mary didn't have any other brothers and sisters. They, they raise her to some kind of an elevation and call her the Queen of Heaven. Jeremiah 7 and Jeremiah 44 strongly condemn any worship to the Queen of Heaven, by the way. But there are some who are trying to make Mary more than she really ever was who say that she never had any other siblings. But the Bible is clear that she did. Jesus Christ had other brothers and sisters, but that, that doesn't negate the virgin birth at all, doesn't take anything away from it. Once he was out of the womb of Mary, her and Joseph had a normal relationship, but the Bible says that Joseph knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son. Now, let's take a look at these other brothers and sisters. Here in Matthew chapter 13, we pick it up in uh, verse number 53. It says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren, James, and Joses, and Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save or except in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now notice it mentions in verse 55, what do we got here? One, two, three, four brothers and his sisters. There was at least two and maybe probably more. So you have s several siblings, all right? How would you like to have a perfect big brother? I mean, literally, a big brother who was 100% perfect. And they called him Yeshua. Now, we call him Jesus, but the name they would have called him is Yeshua. So here's their big brother, Yeshua, and he never sinned. Never. Would there be jealousy? Would there be resentment? Would there be some ill will? Maybe some, some resentment or some doubt or maybe at the very least some insecurity? I mean, you can't measure up to this big brother. I mean, how would you like to live in the mega shadow of a sibling like that? Well, we read in John chapter 7 and in verse 3, his brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go unto Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doest anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou doest these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. We find from this passage and others that his siblings did not believe he was the Messiah. They did not believe that he was the Christ at all. 
Look in, in Matthew chapter 12, just a page or so back. In Matthew 12, beginning in verse 46, Christ is preaching and teaching. It says, And while he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, exclamation point. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. And so he basically has distanced himself from his family at that time. And we read in another passage, I believe it's the same scenario, that they had come to take him home. In so many words, he's beside himself. Uh, Jesus, come home. Yes, you will come back home with us here. You know, in Psalm 69, a thousand years before his birth, the psalmist prophetically speaking for Christ says, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. He was not accepted by his siblings. In fact, remember when he was on the cross? It was the responsibility of the oldest brother when the father died to take care of the mother. And Joseph was dead, evidently, by this point. Nothing's mentioned of Joseph. And Jesus is dying on the cross. You would think, number one, he would have anointed or appointed one of his siblings to take care of Mary. Remember what he did? He didn't. He actually handed that responsibility over to the Apostle John. You would think, secondly, that some of his siblings would have been there with Mary. But they weren't. Were they ashamed of him? Were they embarrassed by him? You know, the Bible pictures the siblings of Christ as skeptical and, 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 and critical and, and, and even uh, cynical. But look in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. After the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, something happened. And something changed in the heart, the hearts of his siblings. Because in Acts chapter 1 and in verse number uh, 12, this is after Christ had ascended. Verse 12 says, Then returned they, that's the disciples, then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey, about a third mile. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, where abode both Peter and James and John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren? With his brethren? Huh! Now they're part of the church at Jerusalem. Well, what changed their mind? How is it that they are now believers here? You know, I, I love this. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 7, after the resurrection, Paul says of Jesus, he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. After that, he was seen of James. He was seen of James. The same James that was mentioned over in Matthew chapter 13, the same James who was, we would say, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ made a special appearance to his, his brother, probably the next in line in age, and no wonder that guy got saved. I think that Christ forgave him. Christ showed him the nail-pierced hands. Christ witnessed to him. And wow, I mean, James responded in faith. And he got saved. He was born again. And he, he, he later on wrote the book of James. Later on in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 18, 
Paul writes, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. But other of the apostles saw I none save James, the Lord's brother. James became, I think, kind of the, the senior pastor, if you will, of the church of Jerusalem. He, he presided over the Jerusalem council there. I think it was in Acts chapter 15. He wrote the book of James, as I mentioned a moment ago. And when he did, he opened it in James 1.1 by saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. He did not say James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. No. He said, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was another brother mentioned back there in Matthew chapter 13. Remember Judas? Kind of derivative of the Old Testament Judah. But maybe a name that you don't want to hang on to. So maybe he just went by Jude. But in Jude 1.1, he opens his epistle by saying, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. He didn't tout being the half-brother of Christ either. He said, I'm a servant of Christ. I'm the brother of James. You know, you hardly ever, if you've ever heard a sermon on the siblings of Christ, it's rare. But we find here that it's, it's a, a normal thing to have siblings, a healthy thing to have siblings. And we find out that even when Jesus rose from the dead, he made a special point of going to his siblings and witnessing to them so that they could get saved. If you have siblings, it might be that you never have achieved what they've achieved, and maybe you've, you've lived in their mega shadow. Maybe uh, they had more brains or looks or athleticism or whatever it might be. And, and uh, we are somewhat of a product of our upbringing, no question about that. But it doesn't matter if there has been a, a, a wrong relationship with a relative or a sibling especially. Uh, that can be restored. And there can be a rekindling there. Jesus Christ forgave his siblings for the way they treated him. They just, they moved on. And really, there's a lesson here for us in family living. So we see the meticulous medic. We see the overshadowed offsprings. And finally, we see another nobody, a convinced centurion. Look at Mark chapter 15. A centurion was a soldier who was over 100 soldiers. He was the one in charge. And I think... Perhaps the most famous centurion in the Bible might be the one who oversaw the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pick it up in Mark chapter 1. He did more than oversee that crucifixion. In, in verse 15, uh, chapter 15 and verse 1, it says, And straightway in the morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and whole council and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now, it wasn't the chief priests and elders and scribes who bound Jesus. It was a soldier. And over that soldier, those soldiers, was this centurion. We read on in Mark 15. Notice verse 11. It says, But the chief priest moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. Who was in charge of releasing Barabbas? It was this same centurion. We pick it up in verse 16. And the soldiers led him, Christ, away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. And they clothed him, Christ, with purple, and platted a crown of thorns, and put it upon his head, and began to salute him, uh, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed, and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, and put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Guess who's overseeing all this? 
the centurion. Guess who compels Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross? It was the centurion. Uh, Verse 25 says, and it was the third hour, and they crucified him. The centurion was in charge of all that. We read in Luke 23, 34, Then Jesus... Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Remember Luke giving us those details? The centurion was overseeing the parting of the garments there. In verse 33, it says, And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The centurion saw that darkness. Verse 37, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. I call him the convinced centurion, the overseer of the execution. No doubt rough, no doubt, no doubt crude. Matthew 27, verse 54 says, Now the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done. They feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. They saw the, uh, the elements acting up, nature not behaving itself normally. They saw the conduct of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And the centurion, I think, became convinced. He became a believer. You know, we find that there's another centurion mentioned in Matthew chapter 8. Remember when, uh, when a servant of a centurion was, was sick and dying, and the centurion sent to Jesus and said, Would you heal my servant? Maybe that centurion got saved and he witnessed to this centurion here in in, uh, the crucifixion scenario here. They had a league, no doubt, a a brotherhood, if you will. And and so maybe this guy was already witnessed to. And so for whatever reason, I believe he, he carried out his execution, but he became a believer afterwards. By the way, there's three or four centurions mentioned in the Bible. It's very interesting. Obviously, there's Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 who became a believer. There's Julius. We read about him a moment ago in, in Acts 27 who carried Paul all the way to Rome. And, and sometimes those we witnessed who have, uh, have very nasty natures, centurions had pretty nasty natures, no doubt. But ironically, there's some in the Bible that become believers. Back in 1965, there was an epic motion picture made by, uh, I forget the, the, the director, but it was called The Greatest Story Ever Told. It had uh, Charlton Heston in it. He was John the Baptist. Telly Savalas was uh, Pontius Pilate. Uh, there was Roddy McDowell and Pat Boone and, and Angela Lansbury and Shelley Winters and Sidney Pottier. And it was just an all-star cast. But the guy who was the centurion, you hardly could tell who he was. He was a big hulking fella. And you could not tell until he, he uttered those words, surely this man was the Son of God. It was John Wayne. John Wayne playing the the centurion we're talking about here. But this centurion was a real person. He was was born at the turn of the millennium. Think about this. Of all the people, here he is, born for this real-life role, date with history, and and after years of hardening, here he is trained for torture and execution, and and that had become as routine as as sharpening his sword and, and, and maybe shining his shield. He had put to death thousands, perhaps, people. But this quote-unquote criminal is different. There's something different about him. When, he, when this criminal was flogged, he, he, he didn't uh, recoil at, at his uh, floggers and swear and spit at them. When, when, when he was mocked, he didn't knock, mock back. He, he took the crown of thorns. 
And then this centurion oversaw the, the driving of spikes through the flesh of this man. He oversaw the hoisting up of him. And they all stood back and, of course, they just waited while the victim suffered. And if he didn't die soon enough, they would break the legs. But about midday, all of a sudden, the sky goes black, pitch black. It's dark out. Something really strange is going on. Three hours later, there's an earthquake. And when Jesus Christ cries out in the, in, 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 in the, in the, 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 the sky there, He cries out and the temple veil is, is torn in two. I mean, all this stuff is going on. Graves are being torn out there in the valley of Kidron and, and the dead are walking about. The Bible tells us in Luke 23, 47, Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. What's the point? Well, sometimes... Sometimes we don't witness to certain people because we feel they're too hard. Maybe they're too confident. Maybe they're too certain about themselves and, and cocky and undaunted. And, and we say, well, I could just never witness somebody like that. Really, anyone is reachable. Anyone's a bowl of worms. I mean, if this centurion is capable of being saved, uh, it, it shows to us certain circumstances could really melt anybody. And you just never know what people are going through what they're thinking inside, or how the Spirit of God is working on them. God just needs a nobody to speak up and talk to them. Well, we've looked at the meticulous medic, the overshadowed offsprings, the convinced centurion. Our text says, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Notice that no flesh should glory in his presence. If you're nobody, take heart. That's exactly the people that God uses. Let's let God use us. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.